0: So Church, today we'll be concluding our series, Strangely Dim, where throughout the summer, I mean, can you believe it? Summer is like, summer is almost over, which means our summer is coming. But um, throughout the summer, we've been looking at some of the actions through the Gospels, the action of Jesus through the Gospels. If you have your Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. And if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word. When I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And then you, wherever you are at, living room, bedroom, wherever, you say out loud, thanks be to God. And then I'll ask you to be seated. So please stand with me for the reading of the scriptures. Matthew 15, 21, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So the disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we kind of move in and dive into this very strange text a very um contested uh, debated uh text in the gospels maybe one of the most debated texts in the gospels we just pray that you'd give us um an open heart and open mind and that your your spirit and your word would make its way into maybe parts of our minds and our hearts and our lives and even our bodies that um maybe are just haven't been um activated or even invaded by your spirit during uh, this time of shelter in place. I pray you would do that by your spirit. I pray you do that with power and with your authority, God, with your gentleness and your ability to know how to correct us. Um, I pray you do that all in the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This week, I've been um, strangely drawn to this passage of scripture it's been turning over uh, in my mind and in my imagination. And this is a a short story about a a desperate mom of a suffering daughter, a daughter who's demon-possessed, as we read in the story. See, desperate moms and dads will do anything and go anywhere to care for their kids. I mean, I can't imagine how many sleepless nights this mom in the story has had trying to calm and soothe her daughter. Maybe that's why I've been drawn to this passage uh, Juniper, our daughter, is not demon-possessed, thank God, um, but is going through that, that teething and I forgot how to sleep during the night phase of babyhood, and, it's, and we're almost ready to try anything, right? Um, we're exhausted. But, but when this desperate mommy actually gets to Jesus, she is met with only silence. Jesus doesn't answer her. The text doesn't even say he looked at her. So this mom gets to Jesus, begs Jesus to heal, in desperation, heal my daughter, and Jesus is completely silent. Now, if you're a student of the Gospels at all, you'll know right away that this is very uncharacteristic of Jesus. So maybe that's why I've been drawn to this passage. When God feels uncharacteristically silent in my life, when Jesus doesn't seem to be looking, when your life feels like it's unraveling, I mean, that sounds exactly where, like where I've been at lately, and I know many of you have been there as well. But then there's the, the centerpiece of this story, of this encounter. Jesus says to this woman what honestly sounds like an ethnocentric slur or, um, well, as we would say on Twitter, a racial slur. He says to this woman, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I mean, that's what he says to a non-Jewish Canaanite woman. And with that, you have the most un-Christian and un-Jesus thing Jesus ever said in the Gospels. And maybe that's why I've been drawn to this passage. When I find in the world or in my life, God acting in ways that are unfamiliar to me, that don't line up with what I thought his character was like, but I thought his voice sounded like, what do I do? What do you do? Do we walk away? Do we give up? Do we point a finger and call Jesus prejudiced or unloving or not really real? You're not really real. You're not the loving savior I thought you were. And what about his disciples here? I mean, they're like, they're kind of the most unwelcoming part of this whole story. They're the ones telling Jesus to send her away. What do we do when the disciples of Jesus, the church, isn't hospitable to us? Isn't loving? Isn't what we thought church should be? Do we walk away from that? See, the reason why this is all there is because ultimately this is a story about faith. Maybe that's why I've been drawn to it. Because at the end of the day, that's what this story is really about. About what faith looks like in a real world of pain and suffering, a world filled with unhospitable people, sick kids, desperation, and what faith looks like when God doesn't act in ways we expect him to act. And because it's a story about faith, it's a story about struggle. The struggle with the demonic, as shown um, in, this daughter, in her daughter's demon possession, she's struggling with the demonic here in this story. But when she encounters Jesus, she struggles with the divine, as shown in this woman's whole struggle with Jesus, the back and forthness she has with Jesus. And this is because life is a story of struggle. All life demands struggle. Life doesn't come easy, and the Christian life doesn't come easy as well. Not even for the privileged does life come easy, especially not for the marginalized. And what emerges from this epic struggle with the demonic and the divine for this woman is, in the words of Jesus himself, great faith. This woman has great faith. Let's see how she gets to having great faith. That's kinda what I wanna do this morning. And maybe how Jesus might be extracting that great faith from her. Now before we dive too deep into the specifics of this passage of scripture, there are a few things I need to say by way of setup about Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is about Jesus making Disciples, that's like the meta theme of this whole gospel. That's why this book is mainly about like Jesus' teachings and everything he does, there's a teaching attached to it. It's a disciple of Jesus making book. That's the purpose of it. In this gospel, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher and is teaching his way to his disciples. And by disciples are a proxy for us, he's teaching us his way as well. His way of life, his teachings, and the way he wants us all, his disciples, to live into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is what Matthew talks about when he talks about the kingdom of God. Maybe that language is more familiar to you, the kingdom of God. But Matthew uses the words, the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew does this for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that Matthew is writing to a Jewish Audience, and for a Jewish audience, using the word God for them in their tradition, it was it was violating the commandment about taking the Lord's name in vain. So they avoided the word God altogether. So Matthew uses heaven as a stand-in for God. That's kind of what Matthew's doing there. But also, I think more important and maybe uh, poignant to our our text today, for Matthew, he's showing his mainly Jewish readers who had hoped in a physical kingdom set up by a Messiah on earth that the Messiah set up a kingdom that's in heaven. That's coming to earth, but it's in heaven. It's of heaven. It's not located in Jerusalem. It's not located in United States. It's not located in any place on earth. It's located primarily in heaven. And then ultimately it's located in the believers of Jesus. Thus he uses the kingdom of heaven which actually leads me to another important point in Matthew's writing, and that is Matthew uses irony to subvert the ethnocentric nature of the Jewish faith. What Matthew does in his book is ironically showed that the gospel is for the nations, not just for the Jews. And he does that by writing the most Jewish gospel account and at the same time, the most anti-Jewish gospel account. Dr. John Leonard, in his writings on the book of Matthew, says that Matthew is the most most Jewish in his flavor and nature, but is the most hostile to the Jewish people that even holds up Gentiles in very high esteem. For example, at the beginning of Matthew, we find the Jewish people from Jerusalem, namely Herod, King Herod, trying to kill the baby Jesus. And Magi from the east... Gentiles going to worship the Jewish Messiah. And then when things get really hostile, Jesus' family flee, they flee to Egypt, where in Exodus they were killing Jewish male babies, but now it's where the Jewish Messiah flees for protection. Do you see the irony? Now, if you're Jewish and you're reading this in first century, you're like, dang, we really suck right now. That's basically how Matthew sets up his book. It's Jewish and anti-Jewish at the same time. And this is the very subversive irony in Matthew's gospel. It's Israel and the Jewish leaders that are dangerous and foreign lands and foreign people who are safe. And the only two people in Matthew's gospel who are said to have great faith are a Roman centurion who is the New Testament sworn enemy of God's people and a Canaanite woman from our story today who is the Old Testament sworn enemy of God's people. So to review, Matthew is a book about Jesus' teaching, his disciples, his way to live in the kingdom of heaven, and at the same time, this book is a subversive book that shows the universal gospel of Jesus, that it's not just to the Jews but for everyone. Okay, so hopefully if we were together, I'd say, are you with me? And you would go, yes, we're completely with you, we're following you, but I'll just in spirit believe that you are. Now, that's some broad context for the the Gospel of Matthew. But let's zoom in to some specific context in our text this morning. If you have your Bible's open, you'll notice that this story uh, of the Canaanite woman is sandwiched between sandwiches upon you'll get in a second. It's sandwiched between two stories of miraculous feedings. The first is Matthew 14:13 where Jesus feeds the 5000, and we see that Jesus multiplies the fish and the loaves, the loaves are the, the important the bread and he feeds multitudes, and at the end of him feeding multitudes, there are 12 basketfuls of leftovers. They, they, they end with more than they started with, that's the point. Then right after our story of the Canaanite woman, in Matthew 15, 29, Jesus feeds 4,000, and everyone ate and were satisfied, which is my favorite phrase in Matthew, they ate and they were satisfied, and they picked up seven basketfuls of leftover bread. Here's the point. There is enough bread to go around. In Jesus, there's enough to go around. I need you to keep that in mind as you read this story. Okay. In between sandwich, hopefully you get that. Sandwich between the two feedings is this story of the Canaanite woman. Verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. Now, Tyre and Sidon were the most pagan places um, a Jewish person, person can go. This is like super, super, super pagan. This is like where you feel like, like you're not in Kansas anymore to a Jewish person, like this is an unclean place. Actually, you would never really go there, but. Typically, you wouldn't go there as a Jewish man and with his disciples, but we're told in Mark's gospel, Jesus goes there to find some rest, which reinforces this idea that enemy territory is actually safe places. So Jesus goes there to find rest. And more interesting is that in Mark's gospel, Mark calls this woman by her actual modern at that time, ethnicity. She was Syrophoenician. But Matthew doesn't say she's Syrophoenician. He uses her Old Testament identity, which would stir up and like trigger all these emotions for Jewish people. He calls her a Canaanite. Now, Canaanite for the, for readers of this, like first century readers of this, of this gospel meant everything dangerous to the faith of Israel. That's what Canaanite meant. That like the sworn enemies of God, right? if you're familiar with the Old Testament writings. So the tension is already starting to build here. Jesus is in this foreign place, it's very, very pagan. This Canaanite woman comes up to him, verse 22, and she's crying out, but look at the the title she says. She calls him Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. She says, my daughter is demon possessed and is suffering terribly. Now, it's strange that this Gentile calls Jesus the son of David, which is a very Jewish messianic title. But the whole point here is this. She should not be approaching a Jewish rabbi. She has no standing morally, spiritually, ritually to approach Jesus like this. She has no right to be standing there. And she knew that. Tyre was close enough to Jewish culture that she knew she couldn't approach a Jewish rabbi especially one as powerful and as popular as Jesus. But she doesn't care. She's a mom first. She had a daughter with a, that was desperate for Jesus' help. Desperation will cause us to cross boundaries and barriers that we thought we'd never cross. And not just that, but I think more socially potent is a reality that for members of despised and marginalized groups, they most often have to be bold in seeking relief from their misery. They have to be. They can't settle for the too often answer they get from people, which is no, or go away, or not now. They have to be bold in asking for relief. My mom, who fought breast cancer a couple years ago, just found out that her cancer is back. And for my mom, um, who's an immigrant, um, where English is a second language, and who's in the Medi-Cal system in California, the default answer in her medical care all too often is flat out rejection. Like every single time she goes for care with something that has to do with her cancer, the first answer is typically no. And she doesn't understand that. She doesn't understand like why the no or what questions to ask, to be honest. And if it wasn't, and she's even said this, if it wasn't for my sisters who do not take no for an answer, who know how to get very loud and keep petitioning rejection letters for MRIs and scans, my mom would probably be left there just to die. See, something very similar is going on here in this text. This woman, who doesn't have any real footing to stand on in that first century context to approach Jesus, does so anyway and does it loudly. You will hear my petition. You will hear my plea. I will come before you, and I you will listen. You will hear. Okay, this is where, this next part of the story is where, um, It gets a little hard to keep reading if I was completely honest. It says in verse 23 that Jesus did not answer a word. He doesn't answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. She's bothering us. Tell her to go. Some translators say they were telling Jesus to hurry up and heal her so she can go. Like just get get her out of here. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel, which is super cryptic and just, just kind of, I mean, it's true. We know this is true from Romans. We know this is true, but it's also really insensitive here. The woman came and knelt before Jesus. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the docks. And she says, yes, it is. It is right. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Okay, what's going on here? I want to look at this portion from two perspectives. The first is from Jesus' perspective and what he might be doing here, possibly. And the second is from the woman's perspective and the great faith shown by her. So first, Jesus. Can we just say like right away that this does not sound anything like Jesus? Can we just get that out of the way? We have to say that. This doesn't sound like Jesus at all. He is typically moved by people in need who are desperate and who are despised. He runs to them. He goes and finds them. His insides turn for them, meaning compassion. That word compassion means that your insides turn. He gets, he's compassionate for people. And not just that, he already healed a Gentile servant when he requested Jesus to do so in Matthew chapter 8. So there's precedent for Jesus healing Gentile people. And we know from early in John's Gospel that he goes out of his way to speak with a Samaritan woman who was at that time ethnically and racially separated from the Jewish people to bring restoration to her. So there's a precedent for him healing a woman that is racially divided and different from him. He moves towards these people. Why is Jesus acting like this? First, he acts in silence. Then kind of speaking to the heir or to himself or no one in particular, kind of aloofly, he just says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. That does not sound like something Jesus would say, just like to himself. Not even like, he says, just replies, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Then that metaphor or parable where she is the dog in the story, and I can't remove the sting of that. That's just there in the story. I don't really know what to do with that. To be honest, I can't completely tell you what Jesus was thinking, or what Jesus, what his intentions were here. I can't can't tell you that. And therefore, I couldn't tell you exactly what Jesus was doing when he was interacting with this desperate woman. In the same way, I can't tell you exactly what Jesus is doing in your life or what he's thinking when he's silent towards you or when he gives you an answer that seems offensive to you. I can't tell you exactly what Jesus is doing. However, I have pastored many people through struggle in their lives. I can't say for certain I know what God is up to when I'm pastoring them through their struggle. But what I'll try to do right now, like I do in many counseling appointments and social distance walks now, is to give to you some possibilities of what Jesus might be up to here. And I just wanna stop and say, for those of you that are that are part of our church, that is open to you. Our ministers and pastors and elders are here to pastor you and to be with you and to sit with you. We don't have like literally we don't have all the answers, but we might be able to just to try to discern with you what God might be up to. And that's available to you. Please just reach out to us. We, we, we're here for that. I, I know we, we live in a time where you can't come forward and see us um, on a Sunday or pop into the office, but, um, but we are here nonetheless. So I, what I want to do is I want to just like, what, what might Jesus be up to here? I don't know for sure. I can't tell you exactly. Um, every single commentator uh, can like, No one agrees on what this means, but I want to maybe show you what Jesus might be up to. First, in this story, Jesus might be trying to teach his disciples by making space for them to be compassionate. Actually, the story might be about Jesus making space for his disciples to step in and be compassionate themselves. What if... The silence of Jesus towards this woman and the aloof statement about being called to the law sheep of Israel was really about leaving space for his disciples to step in and show compassion. Remember that during the feeding of 5,000 that the disciples wanted, remember when, when disciples came to Jesus were like, Jesus, there's so many people here, send them home. And Jesus says, I'm not sending them home, you feed them. See what Jesus is doing there? He's teaching them, show compassion, get involved, step in and do something. Don't just send them away, do something. I mean, it's literally right there in the chapter before, around this like feeding theme. You step in and you take care of them. That's what Jesus told them. Remember, Jesus is a teacher. He's teaching his disciples to step in and get involved and show compassion and show love and serve. He's teaching them. He will go on to teach that the greatest among you shall be the servant. He's a teacher in that way. So maybe Jesus is saying that to them. He's saying, I want you to get involved. And does that not teach you about The character of Jesus, when Jesus says, you get involved, and then he goes and feeds them. Doesn't that teach you about his heart for people? This is what Jesus is trying to do, teach them. And now the disciples are faced with a situation where they are desperate, where a desperate woman is there begging and pleading. Did they learn anything? Did they learn anything from the feeding of 5,000? Did they learn anything about Jesus' teachings about being compassionate? The question is, will the disciples step in and help? And obviously, the answer is no. They tell Jesus to tell her to go away. And then Jesus uses this very cryptic and quite offensive metaphor about how it's not right to take children's bread and give it to the dogs. Now, offense aside, let's just remove the offense for a second. Let's ask ourselves why would it ever be okay to give? the kid's bread to the dogs? Why would you give a, your, your child's bread to your dog? First off, let's just say that if you have dogs, 100% of you do this right now, if you love your dog. If you don't love your dog, you don't do this. But if you love your dog, every single one of us takes a bite and our dog is there, just sitting there looking at you with those cute little eyes, She's like, you can have some of my food. Uh, I feed Prince off Junie's plate all the time, like all the time, and not just that. my plate and sometimes even my fork, but we're not getting into that right now. Why? Because I love him. I love my dog. Now, think about this. Why wouldn't I do that? Well, you might say, because I thought you were a germaphobe and I thought you were sane. And No, the reason why I wouldn't do that was if, imagine the first century context here for a second. Uh, It's agrarian society society not of abundance but scarcity. The reason I wouldn't and you wouldn't feed your kid's bread to the dog is because you don't know if there will be enough bread. That's that's the only reason why. You don't feed your dog the kid's food because there's not enough bread to go around and you don't know if there's gonna be more bread to go around. It's, it's, It's a whole lesson in scarcity. It's the reason why Jesus said that. It's scarcity, I'm not giving the dog, the kid's food to the dog, so it might not be enough. You can't give bread to your dog because you don't know if the bread will last. So what Jesus might be saying here is there might not be enough. We have to feed the kids first. Actually, in Mark's gospel, he says kids first, which should have triggered in the disciples' mind, wait, there is enough bread, like literally enough bread. We can share our bread because Jesus makes all the bread. He has so much bread. He just made bread. He's about to make some more bread. He had, we can, Jesus, we're the kids. We can feed her because we have enough bread, which if that was the case, this would actually shed incredible light on the teaching Jesus gives later in Matthew 25 of the sheep and the goats. Who are the sheep that follow Jesus and get into heaven? The ones who didn't stand by when the stranger who is in their midst is hungry or in need. But the the, the sheep, the true followers of Jesus get involved. They clothe the naked, they feed the hungry, they give the thirsty something to drink. They spend time with the prisoners in prison. Jesus here could be making space for his disciples whom he has taught these lessons to, to step into them right now. But like often happens, they do not step into this teaching. What happens when you see the plight of someone who can't seem to get ahead in life, who is beat up by constant struggle? What if the lesson that Jesus is trying to invite you into and me into is to get involved. Do something. There's enough bread here to go around. Share your bread, child. Child, share your bread. Another thing Jesus might be doing here. Again, all of this, most of this is complete. We just don't know. There's so many people that think they know what's going on here. We just don't know what's in the mind of Jesus. But the whole thing that happens in the end, when you take the entire story as one, it seems to shed some backlight on some of this. Another thing Jesus might be doing here, and this turns our attention to the woman now. Quite simply, it could be that Jesus is drawing faith out of her. He sees it, he recognizes it, He is moved by her faith, but doesn't let on because he wants to draw it out. Not just faith from her, a faith that would cause her to break social barriers to get to him, that's faith. He wants to extract from her great faith, a faith that would struggle not just with the demonic, but greater still, a faith that would struggle with the divine to get her blessing. I'm reminded here of what Jesus said about prayer in Matthew seven on the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, ask, seek, knock. The Greek reads like this, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. When it's framed like this, prayer sounds like struggle. And maybe that's more accurate to what prayer is really like. What if that command to ask, seek, and knock is Jesus trying to draw out faith in us. And what if faith isn't great until it's gone through the struggle of persistence? What if we too often, in very comfortable therapeutic culture, want faith to be easy? We wanna ask and then receive like that. Not keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. What if what Jesus is really trying to do here is is extract out of us through his sovereign plan, through his divine will, a great faith in us? And maybe if so, maybe that's what Jesus is doing here. He's drawing out of this woman great faith through struggle. And that's exactly what she does with him, she struggles with him. She knows she has no standing for a Jewish rabbi. She knows she's a Canaanite or Syrophoenician. She's a Gentile. She knows all of these things, but what she knows is this, that Jesus is compassionate. She's heard of Jesus' character and knows exactly who this rabbi is, the son of David. She knows he's Messiah. And because of that, she knows his character. So she'll keep asking, keep seeking, she'll even, enter this very weird parable world of Jesus, where for some of us, we would call it right there, like you called me a dog, I'm out. She enters into this world of his, this parabolic world that he's created and says, yes, but even even dogs get crumbs from their master's table. And in this story, we see that um, dogs become children we see the gospel, we see the fairy tale of the gospel that people were, that were outside are brought inside, people who are marginalized are brought to the center. This is what happens through the struggle of great faith. She was not okay with just Jesus' first answer. And because of that, this woman doesn't just get a healing here. She actually gets Jesus. Let me explain. The way this Greek story is written We only have Jesus named in the opening verse, verse 21. That's the only time at the beginning of this verse that Jesus is named. Leaving that place, it says, verse 21, Jesus withdrew. In the Greek, you don't have Jesus mentioned for the rest of the story. Then for the rest of the encounter, the story doesn't use his name. It just says, he was quiet. He answered. He helped. Matthew just uses this kind of like cold, personal pronoun, he, as if Jesus wasn't fully there. But when this woman answers Jesus and says to him, yes, it is right for you to feed me too, even dogs get crumbs, at last, Matthew says, Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Almost as if Jesus, as we know him, the compassionate one, the one who does restore and heal and answer prayer, that Jesus finally speaks. And he says, there it is. That's great faith. And by the way, no other Jewish person in Matthew's gospel gets this title of having great faith. Actually, it's the opposite. Little faith. She has great faith. Jesus, I believe one of the things Jesus might be doing here is he's extracting through struggle great faith from this woman. And what if this too was the invitation in our own struggles? The struggle to find God, to find God's will, to know God, to hear, for God to hear us, and to hear our prayers? What if the struggle is the only way we can have great faith, and at the same time get the real Jesus? What if it was the only way? I can't, I can't pretend to say I know why this is the only way. I can say if you look and you read the scriptures and immerse yourself in the story world of the scriptures, and if you immerse yourself in just real life, struggle is a part of real life. It's a part of real faith. If you find yourself, like myself, struggling right now, maybe that's what Jesus wants us to enter into so that we can build our great faith capacity, so that we can grow, that we can grow wings, that we can grow we can grow compassion, that we can become the kind of disciples that are not just resilient, but empathetic, that when we see, like disciples were supposed to, I think. Someone hurting, they don't say go away, but they say, here's my coat, here's my food, here's my bread, there's plenty of bread here. Okay, I've, I've said a lot. What I like to do is I like to be silent for a moment and invite the Spirit of God to speak to us right now, to press something home for us right now. So to do that, I would like for you to close your eyes and open your palms to God in a physical posture of receiving and humility. You may even kneel right now if you choose, if you can kneel right now. Let's just be still. Would Would you take a few deep breaths and just ask the Spirit who is Ruach, wind, breath, to come, say, Holy Spirit, come. Press into me, Holy Spirit things that you desire for me to know and hear I encourage you to let down your guard to let out down your defenses to bring your plea to god Lord, would you move? Would you move in ways that draw out of us great faith? If we can emerge on the other side of this uh, hellish year with great faith and look back and say, You say to us, you have great faith. You have great faith. But Lord, I know there's some struggle that needs to happen, there's some wrestling to be done. There's some questions that for some of us have yet to be answered by you. There's some ways that we've been offended by you, God, but if we press in, we'll find that that was actually maybe invitations to greater faith. Thank you for your compassion and your character and your holiness and your love and your justice and your promise to make everything right. We want to cling to that now, even though we might be in the midst of struggle. In Jesus' name, amen.